Turn to Hebrews 5, and we're going to just look at the next section. We looked at verses 1 through 4 last week. If you weren't with us, I encourage you to go back, listen to the podcast or live stream. Uh, They go together. Uh, I will reference 1 through 4. The writer is... Remember, one of the major themes of Hebrews is Jesus as our high priest. And in verses 1 through 4, the writer gives us the prerequisites, if you will, the qualifications of the high priest. Here in verses 5 through 10, he will demonstrate to us Jesus meets those requirements in his humanity, and arguably he actually exceeds them to be our uniquely qualified, eternal, and heavenly high priest. That theme will remain, and he will unpack a lot of it until we get to actually chapter 10. So uh, we will be looking at this for some time, all right? Okay, a couple new faces. Welcome. We're blessed. We're blessed that you guys are here. Thank you for joining us this morning. All right, well, if you're there, what we generally like to do is just stand in honor of God and his word, Hebrews 5. And some families are back too, so that's fun. A little family reunion for us. All right, the writer writes, again, I, I realize we, we're jumping in the middle of a thought. It's a transition thought, but I'll, I'll rewind during our time of study and make sure we keep the context. Verse 5, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, so God the Father said to God the Son, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He also says in another place, he quotes from another psalm, Psalm 110, you are a priest forever. And then this very interesting phrase, we'll pause a little bit there when we get to it. According to the order of Mechizeldek, he'll repeat it in verse 10. He says, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, was heard because of his godly fear. And though he was a son, yet he learned obedience. And that's another interesting phrase. We're going to need to pause and understand what that meant. How did Jesus learn obedience? By the things he suffered and having perfected, having been perfected, excuse me, another interesting phrase. He became the author of eternal salvation for all who obey him, called by God as high priest. And once again, quotes Psalm 110, according to the order of Mechizeldek. All right, we're going to pause there, and would you pray with me, and we'll pray for our time of study. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for the blessing we can gather before you. Father, we thank you, really, we thank you for Jesus, who came and lived and died and rose again for us, that, Lord, without Jesus, we would be lost, we would be forever condemned, Lord, but because of Christ, we have eternal life. We have life abundant. Lord, we get to know what peace and joy and love and, and even despite disappointments and circumstances that COVID continues to bring, Lord, here on the island across the world, Lord, we thank you that we can keep ourselves anchored on you. And God, I pray you'd help us to do that. Lord, so many Things are still happening with the coronavirus, so we pray for your peace, your grace, your will to be done. Lord, we lift up Israel and Gaza. We thank you for the ceasefire, but Lord, we pray 
the gospel would go forth, that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would be known. God, have your way in that nation, those nations, Lord. And Father, for us, we thank you that you're our good shepherd. You lead us to green pasture. Lord, you're faithful to feed and to care and to tend us as your flock. Lord, you lay down your life for us. And so in response, help us to do the same, that we might become living sacrifices for you today and every day. We ask and pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, would you take a moment real quick and just turn around and say hello and wave or elbow bump and just friendly greet one another as the scriptures would encourage us to do. So I mentioned earlier, verses 1 through 4 in many ways are the job requirement for the high priest. This is what God was looking for. Not just this, but these are the highlights. And now as we come into 5 and 10, we see how Jesus fulfills these requirements. You know, when I was a younger man living back in the States some years ago, uh, if you wanted to look for a job, you wanted to look for employment, uh, you would go to this thing called the newspaper. Anybody in the newspaper? Remember those olden days? And one section in the newspaper was where you could find what was called the want ads. And in the want ads uh, were, was an employment section. And usually uh, there were the various jobs that would be listed in little boxes. And they would just say help wanted or position, you know, these things. And, uh, and to me, it was, it's kind of like Twitter, uh, but on paper, right? It was short. It was concise. You kind of got to the point, often with a phone number. Here's the job. Here's what, we, what was required. And I found a few that are a little bit fun and um, to consider. And I'm going to read them, not that you can't read, but because of a podcast. So uh, here's some examples. So it says, looking for someone to do yard work. Here's the qualification. You have to have a hula hoop, right? It's kind of a funny requirement. Uh, number two. It says, help wanted, cab drivers wanted, nights and weekends must have a good driving and a criminal record. Right? So I would, I would qualify, because yeah. <laughs> I have good driving. What's the next one? Uh, tired of working for only $9.75 per hour? Well, we offer profit sharing and flexible hours, and you can start your pay at 5 to 7 per hour. Yeah? <laughs> kind of the funny thing. And then this last one I thought was funny, surgeon wanted. Like you're, gonna, you're a surgeon, you're looking at the one ad surge, all right? New health clinic opening in the area, no experience needed, but you have to have your own tools, right? So. Uh, and that's not the only place you, know, you could find job ads. Actually, here in even Okinawa, sometimes maybe you've gone to the Kombini, right, Family Mart, and they'll put, you know, Arubaito, they'll put like a part-time job in the window, and so... There are a couple window ads I, I saw that they're appropriate. One was uh, now hiring, but you have to have a clue. That's, uh, <laughs> that's the request, pre-requested. Yeah, pre-request, prerequisite. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I only had half a cup of coffee. Okay. Uh, now hiring cashier. Weekends must be 21. Applications available, and I love this qualifier. You cannot look like Skeletor uh, from He-Man, so... It's a little bit dated if you're like, what's that? Google it later. Google it later. And this last one is one I think a fun one. It says, now hiring part-time, must have often, often availability. Open? Oh, I can't even read. It is open. Open availability. Thank you. 18 or older only and must like smiling and happy things. 
That's a great, that's a, reminds me of Elf, right? I like smiling. It's my favorite. So, so if you know uh, jobs then, that's where you would find it here in verses 1 through 4. This is the prerequisite. And of course, as I mentioned, the writer says, here's how Jesus met those qualifications. Now, for us, as we talk about the priesthood, uh, if you're like me, it, this isn't something that's part of my normal world, right? I mean, aside from being a pastor and these things, but usually for most of us, uh, unless you grew up in a religion that had priests, and there are a few of them, uh, it's not something that we normally dealt with or deal with. Um, and yet, for the Hebrew believers, it was their everyday life. And this is going to be, as I mentioned already, this is going to be a theme, and so it's good for us to understand these things. I encouraged you before, if you don't have a familiarity with the Old Testament, uh, here's some homework. Go back and read the first five books of the Old Testament. It'll help you greatly to understand some of the images, some of the things that the writer is going to talk about. But the issue of the priesthood, again, is not normally one we encounter in our lives. It's a little bit foreign to us, uh, but it was not to them. The original audience of these Jewish believers, this was everyday life for them. This is what they grew up with. This is what they were accustomed to. Uh, I guess it's similar to when people come to Okinawa for the first time. And, you know, for, for, for those of us who've lived here already, you know, the humidity, like, oh, this is, you know, welcome to Okinawa and the cicadas and uh, the airplanes that fly ahead and the typhoons that come uh, and then vending, the vending machines that are randomly placed, right? That's just part of Okinawa. We're a little bit used to that. For these guys, they grew up with the priesthood. It was integral. It was a central part of their worship, their life. It was daily life for them, not just in terms of their religious life. It was everyday community life. That's how much it was a part of their life. And so for them, it would be something they would see and experience often. And of course, it, it, it would fill the senses in many ways. You know, the temple at the time was magnificent. When it was first rebuilt, it was not the same as uh, Solomon's temple. You might remember the story of Haggai and the accounts in Ezra. When they saw it, the people kind of grumbled. But uh, Herod, who wanted to win the affections of the Jewish people of that time during the days of Jesus, he remodeled it. He wanted to make it even more glorious than the, the temple of Solomon. And so there was this splendor to it. There was this um, majesty to it. Was, it was awesome to see. I mean, even the disciples themselves, you might remember the account as they're leaving uh, Jerusalem. We read in, in Matthew that they, they're marveling at the stones. They even tell Jesus, look at this place. And Jesus would say, hey, don't marvel at these things. Surely I say to you that uh, one stone is not going to be remaining upon another. But it was a, it was a magnificent sight to, to see, you know, a building for them to go to and the, the craftsmanship and the artistry of the, you know, of the building and, of course, the, the colorfulness of the curtains and, uh, and then just the priests themselves. And, of course, on top of that, not only then to see, but then there was the, the, you know, the parts that were tangible. People bringing their offerings to the priests and the high priests. And then there would be this interesting smell because... They would sacrifice the animals, and so there would be a mix of, of the animals there, 
live, and then those that were being offered, of course, it was in one way like a giant barbecue. They would place the sacrifice on the brazen altar, and it would be consumed uh, you know, before the Lord. But then there was also the smells of the incense that would be burning constantly within the, the holy place. And so it would be like a, a backyard barbecue at your friends that sells essential oils. You know, it would be this mix of smells there. And then, of course, then there was the high priest, dressed very different from the rest of the priesthood. The rest of the priesthood would be in white linen, bright white. But then the priest himself would also have white linen, but it wouldn't just be that. He would also have this blue cloak that he would wear on top of that. And on top of his blue cloak, he would have this breastplate that would have 12 different jewels that would sparkle and you know, be magnificent in the sunlight. At the bottom of his, uh, of his robe, there would be these uh, unique hems, and there would be pomegranates and, and bells. You remember, the, uh, was it two weeks ago? I couldn't remember the, the sound that bells make. <laughs> they would jingle, right? They would jingle. And so when he walked, it'd be like those kids that have squeaky shoes, squeak, 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 right? But uh, the high priest, when he walked, there would be a jingling about him. And so, again, there would be this, this tremendous, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Experience of the senses. And, and this was part of their everyday life. And the high priest, it would be impressive to see him. You know, from time to time, I've been blessed to be able to attend some of the military functions, some balls and change of commands and uh, retirement and, uh, you know, and to see you dressed in, you know, your military dress blues or, you know, your uniforms. And man, it's impressive. But this would be the high priest. He would be uniquely impressive. What he wore and how he carried himself about. And even I mentioned before, atop his head, he would have this turban with a gold plate that would say, holy unto the Lord. And so that's what the original audience was used to. And it was God-prescribed. It was God-ordained. And so now imagine they have come to this place where they have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they believed upon Christ by faith. Now, some of them maybe saw Jesus and heard Jesus. The disciples did, but a lot of them didn't. And so they would believe upon Jesus as we believe upon Jesus by faith not by sight and not by smell and not by senses. And they would leave then that Old Testament system that they grew up in, that was tangible, that was a part of their life, that was a part of their family, that was a part of their community. And we understand by the context of this book that one of the challenges that many of them faced was that their friends and their family were saying, listen, why are you leaving? Why are you forsaking this? And you're now going after this, this other thing, the way, Jesus, and following him. And so there would be pressure and persecution and ridicule and a great temptation for them to go back to what they used to know and what they used to trust in. And so perhaps for some of them, it raised the questions of, well, how does this supposed to work now? How does this fit with all that God gave us before with the sacrifice system, the priesthood, and all of these things? And so the writer wants to assure them. 
Listen, yes, God gave that. That was God-ordained and God-directed. However, it was temporary. It was something that was put in place until the Messiah came, until Christ, who then fulfilled all of the promises, all of the pictures, all of the foreshadows, all of it is then fulfilled in Christ. And now that Christ is here, we don't need to then follow this anymore. Remember, Jesus himself would say, please do not think that I came to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And so it's not as though he discredited or discounted that, but in fact, he fulfills it. He completes it. And so in his, the writer's establishing his case for who Christ is, he gave us a review of what was required for the high priest, and now he's going to begin to tell us how does Jesus fulfill these requirements. What were the requirements? Real quick. In verse 1, we're told, well, he had to be a man. He was a person picked out of people, an imperfect person picked out of imperfect people. Does Jesus fill that requirement? He does, but with one exception, he's not imperfect. (laughs) But he was a man. He came as a man to be able to relate to us as people. The second one we're told was that he had to have compassion. The priest had to have compassion on people. He couldn't be so lofty and, you know, and um, holier than thou, although he was supposed to be holy, but there was also uh, a, a built-in uh, humility factor that he had to get in line like everybody else to offer sin for, or sacrifices for his sins just like everybody else had to. And so there's this element where he then was compassionate. We're told that he ministered unto the things of God. He sacrifices for the people and himself. And then number four, we're told that the priests were then chosen by God. No one took the honor to himself. It wasn't a role that someone said, oh, I'm going to be the high priest for today. I identify as the high priest. No. God decided. God got to choose. And so having reminded the reader, reminded us, okay, this is what was the requirement, and we looked at that, and we pulled out some qualities of, you know, how, how we understand what it meant for them, what it meant for the high priest, how's it really for us. Hopefully, again, you can go back and review that. But now here, he, he makes the case, so also Christ. And so we have this uh, connecting term, so also Christ. Jesus in the same way, and he begins with the last of his points in verse 4, just as no man takes this honor on himself, so also Christ did not glorify himself to be a high priest, but it was he, God the Father, who said of God the Son, and he quotes from two Psalms, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. And Psalm 2 has already been quoted, by the way, the beginning of this letter when the writer establishes the fact that Christ is greater. Christ is greater than fill in the blank. And for the Jewish believers, he says Christ is greater than the angels. Christ is greater than the prophets. How is he greater? Well, he's the son. And he quotes from Psalm 2. Here he comes back and says Christ is greater as our high priest. And he quotes from Psalm 2. He's the son. And then he quotes also from Psalm 110, which he does in verse 10 as well. 
And here the point he's making is Jesus didn't self-appoint. That even though Christ was Christ and all that Jesus was, he didn't take the title, he didn't take the role upon himself. We don't see him through the Gospels campaigning for that. He didn't apply for the job. He wasn't seeking election to this particular role or position. You know, another fun thing here in Okinawa, if you've been here for some time, you know that when there's political elections, the Okinawans who are running for office, uh, they, do some, they do some different things. Sometimes they'll rent a big van or even a micro bus, right? And they'll fill it with uh, uh, ladies that are wearing hats and white gloves and they drive around and they wave at everybody as they're riding around. Have you seen that before? Or they'll stand on a street corner and they'll have these flags and they'll put them on all the corners and sometimes there's one candidate on one corner, have you seen that? And another candidate on the other, and I feel like, ooh, they're going to rumble. Let's see, you know, like. And they'll have a megaphone or they'll have a loudspeaker, and they basically campaign. They're just telling you, like, hey, why you should vote for me? And if you've never seen it, you can come to my house because they do it right across the street, you know, how blessed I am. <laughs> but Jesus didn't do that. He didn't walk around with a hey, vote for Jesus buttons. You know? He wasn't putting his poster on the walls at Jerusalem and Galilee. No, he wasn't campaigning for this. Jesus was called by God, verse 10. God the Father said to God the Son, you're going to be a high priest forever. And so here we see how Jesus then meets the qualifications that himself, just like the Aaronic priest line, that Jesus didn't, pick it, didn't glorify himself to become high priest, but God the Father gave him that role. Now, Psalm 2 is a, a prophetic psalm. Speaking of Christ, when he, I'll say it in two ways, okay? And this is a phrase we have to slow down. There, there's going to be a few of them, and almost like a speed bump when you come to it, well, well some of you, maybe you don't slow down. You should slow down. We want to take it a little careful. That phrase, today I've begotten you. Again, we talked about it when we were back in chapter 1, but we have to make sure we understand that it doesn't mean, okay, it does not mean that Jesus didn't exist and all of a sudden, some point in time, he did. And it does not mean that Jesus wasn't the Son at some point in time, and all of a sudden he became the Son. See, Jesus is God. And as God, he always was and always is and always will be. And I would even argue to you that Jesus is, has always been God the Son. So we have to deal with this term begotten then. What does it mean that he was begotten? Well, that phrase is an important phrase. It was spoken by the Father, not just from Psalm, but God himself would say the same thing at these crucial times in the life and ministry of Christ when he came as a man here to earth. So at his baptism, when John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, we read of how the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus and like a dove, and God would speak from heaven and say, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The same phrase appears when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, some high mountain, and maybe you remember the account where there 
supernaturally, miraculously, Elijah and Moses will show up. And Jesus is there with Peter and James and John and just this amazing scene. And then God would speak from heaven and say, this is my beloved son. So it happens at his baptism, the beginning of his ministry. It happens at the transfiguration. And then Peter tells us as he's standing before the Jewish leaders in Acts chapter 13, he quotes from the same psalm and, he, and he's talking about Christ and his glorification and when Jesus was resurrected. How today God would say, today you are my son and I have begotten you. And so we understand that for us in one sense, it's when Christ came to earth, if you will, then he was manifested, he was re- revealed as the Son of God. He always has been, but for us, he was revealed that way. But that term begotten in the original Greek isn't the same as we think of it in English, as though something wasn't and now it was. In the original Greek, it's a compound word. It's monogenes. Mono being one and genus being kind. And the idea is that Jesus is one of a kind, uniquely of his kind, uniquely the Son of God, equal in essence, equal in nature, the same as the Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the triunity, the trinity, as we call it. And so we have to understand that this psalm doesn't mean that Christ wasn't and all of a sudden was. But it is that as he came to earth, it revealed who he was. Because of his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. So hopefully that makes sense. See, it's different from us, right? Jesus has always been the son, but for us, we are God's creation, but we haven't always been God's child. There was a point in time in your life as there was in mine where uh, I wasn't a child of God. The Bible says for you and for me, right, we have these before and after pictures. We once lived according to the pattern of this world. We once were in disobedience and we once were children of wrath just like the rest. In Ephesians chapter 2, that great contrast But God, who was rich in mercy towards us because of his great love for you and for me, made us alive together with Christ. And it goes on to say, and then you and I who were once not children, we were strangers, but now no longer strangers, and now we are the household of God. We are the sons and daughters of God, Ephesians 2, 19. And so Jesus has always been the Son, forever will be. Uh, For us, it's different. And hopefully today you know that you are a child of God. And if you don't know that, guess what? You can be today. Very simply by repenting of your sin, turning away from your old life, and receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Jesus uniquely is the Son of God. No one else has that position. Hopefully these are things that you already know that I'm affirming for you, that Christ is God and He is fully God, but He is also fully man. And so if anything, the idea of being begotten speaks not in terms of 
uh, he wasn't and now he was, but it speaks to he always was, but now it's revealed to us. What is true in the heavens has now been revealed to us. There's a, a revelation of the glory of who Christ is. He quotes also then from Psalm 110. Again, Jesus didn't apply to the position of high priest. God would choose Christ. God the Father chose God the Son, appointed Jesus to this role. Now, if you and I uh, were you know, part of the original audience, I would imagine as we're listening to this, if we have a background and understand, okay, uh, God chose him, I'm tracking. He's supposed to be of men. Okay, Jesus came as a man, I'm tracking. Uh, however, I have a little bit of an issue. Let me raise my hand and pose this question. Because as I understand it, he has to be from the line of Aaron. He has to be, you made a joke, Pastor Rick, last week, or at least it was an attempt of a joke. He had to have the right genes, the Levi genes. And I know my Bible pretty good. So do you. Uh, Jesus is from what tribe? Someone said, I heard it. Judah. Very good. He's not from Levi. And one of his titles is the line of the tribe of Judah. He's from Judah. He's from the line of David. He's not, a, he's not from a Levitical line. And so right away, we run into a little bit of a problem. Okay, yes, he came as a man. We can check that box. But uh, he's not Aaron's son. He's not part of the Levites. Uh, we have an issue. How can he be a priest? How can he be the high priest if he's not part of this line. And so the writer then answers that question for us. The writer answers that objection, and he quotes from Psalm 10, always good to take Scripture to defend Scripture, right? Scripture to amplify Scripture, verse 4 of Psalm 110, and he quotes it, for you are a priest forever from the order of Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? That's a great question. There's not a lot of information about him, but he is very important, especially to the writer's point. And today, we don't have the time to unpack it. In fact, the writer is going to do it for us when we get to chapter 7. And so here's a little bit of homework for you, if I can assign this. In the weeks to come, go read ahead, read chapter 6, read chapter 7, read Genesis 14. And get familiar with who this particular person is. I'll give a little bit because it's important. It's germane to what we're trying to understand here. The writer will make a biblical and in chapter 7 make a, this deep kind of logical follow my points, follow my thinking. You know, he's going to kind of pull it apart for us. And basically his point will be in two things. Jesus qualifies, yes, he's not part of the Aaronic priesthood, but he, he's part of the Mechizeldek priesthood. And the Mechizeldek priesthood predates the Aaronic priesthood. It existed even before Aaron and Levi were alive. And so he has a, well, he has a different pre-existing uh, pedigree, if you will, or you know, an order that he belongs to, so he still qualifies. 
And the argument will be, well, in fact, Jesus is actually greater because this priesthood is unique in that Aaron's priesthood, you remember that Aaron and his sons could only be the priest and high priest. They couldn't be anything else. And I had mentioned to you that even the kings couldn't be priests, right? You couldn't be dual-hatted. You had one job, and that was your job. And there were times where some of the kings tried to take on the job of the priesthood. Saul was one. He went in. He wanted to offer a sacrifice. Samuel shows up. And memory's like, get out of here. You shouldn't be in here. King Uzziah, the same thing. He goes into the temple. He wants to offer incense. The high priest says, you have overstepped your bounds. God brings judgment on King Uzziah. He gets struck with leprosy. Uh, those are things the kings should not do. The king was to be the king, and the priest was to be the priest. However, Mechizeldek is different because not only is the priest, he is also the king of Salem. He's the king of Jerusalem. And so he's an enigma. He's an anomaly. He is both king and he is priest. And Jesus comes from this order. And we, we'll get there soon, but I mentioned before, in fact, Jesus is even greater than Mechizeldek because... In one sense, although some would say that Mechizeldek was a, a pre-Christ appearance, right? Jesus appearing in the Old Testament. But Jesus is not only the priest, not only a king, he's also prophet, right? He's, he's priest, king, and prophet. He's unique in who he is. But again, the writer bringing all of this to say Jesus qualifies if the prerequisite is have a hula hoop, if the prerequisite is you must have an, an associate in the Aaronic priesthood, Jesus shows up and says, I have a doctorate in the Mechizeldek. He's overqualified. And it never expires. You are a priest forever. See, Aaron and his sons... We realize as mere men, there were a lot of limitations. He stood in line to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just like everybody else. But Jesus never sinned. And Aaron would live, and Aaron would die, and he would be buried. And so did his sons and all the priests after him. There would have to be a new one installed every time. And yet Jesus, who lived and died and rose again, the Bible says he lives forevermore. Later on in Hebrews 8, he sits at the right hand of the Father, serving as a high priest to intercede for us forever. He then becomes or is our forever high priest. How does that fit then for the original audience? The writer wants to comfort them to say, listen, yes, God instituted the priesthood, but Christ came and fulfilled it. He is the greater high priest. He's the better high priest. You don't need to then go to this mediator anymore with your offerings anymore. In fact, Christ himself was the final and complete offering. And what a blessing for us. That you and I then, as we've already been told, in the end of four, we can come boldly to God's throne room of grace Anytime that we need for mercy and help and wisdom and comfort, whatever it is that your heart longs for, Christ can provide. And so we are reminded that Jesus is our better high priest. 
And he's not limited forever. He's always available. He's always ready to listen. He always cares. And he's always there to provide wisdom and guidance and grace and comfort. We're told, verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplications, and notice this, this is interesting because we don't read this in the Gospels, with vehement, that means strong emotion, with cries and tears, he prayed to God the Father who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his godly fear. And so we're reminded of the humanity of Christ. Jesus, fully God, who came as fully man. John 1.1, 1, 1, the word became flesh and he dwelt amongst us. Right? The incarnation. Hopefully, for all of you, right, Christianity 101, this is, we got this. Jesus came, he's God in human form. He assumed a human body and with its limitations, with its temptations, with its its thirsts and desires and and pains and hurts and everything that we experience, Christ experienced. And the one exception and very important exception though is that he never sinned. Romans 8.3 says, For what the law was powerless to do, that it was weakened by the flesh, God did. God overcame by sending his son in the likeness, in the likeness of sinful man without sin as an offering, right? He who knew no sin became sin, so you and I become the righteousness of God. And all that to say then Jesus experienced the same emotions, sadness and gladness and disappointments, frustrations and fears, pains and hurts. I mean, all of it. He knew what it meant to be betrayed and hungry, angry. And so here we realize in his humanity, There's this very emotional scene where he prays to the Lord. He prays to the Father. Now, the Gospels don't give us the intensity. Although, maybe that's not true. We don't read specifically that he prayed vehemently with tears. But we do pray, or we do read that when he prayed, he tells the disciples, I am sorrowful even unto death. And the Gospels tell us that he prayed in such a way, with such intensity, that, that it's believed that not only did he begin to sweat, but he began to bleed from the intensity and the, and the, and the strain of it that, it, that it fell like drops of blood. Luke 22 tells us this. And so this scene, I believe, is a scene that takes us back to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is appropriate. It's a that means the place of pressing. And the Spirit then providing this additional insight where Christ in his flesh cries out deep, fervent, emotional. You ever pray that way? You ever come to that place or just... And here we read that the Father heard him. What does it mean that the Father heard him? See, we need to understand that, yes, God was able to save him, and yes, God heard him, and yes, the Lord models in his flesh a reverence to the Father, and it's modeled even in his prayer, Lord, if it's possible to take this cup, this, this, the cross that I'm 
uh, is coming before me. If there's any other way, take it away. But if not, Lord, your will be done, not mine. See, sometimes I think we make the mistake to think, oh, I've prayed this prayer, God didn't hear me. And the reason we say that is because we didn't get what we prayed for. And we equate it to God didn't hear me. Listen, can I say this in love? No, I think God heard you. He just said no. Or he said later. See, the, the father heard the son. God the father was able and yet it wasn't part of his will. And where the Lord then submitted in godly fear was, Lord, your will be done, not mine. And what a great model for us. But you understand for the Lord where he then understands compassion as well, where he qualifies, if you will. Because it wasn't just the physical pain that he's praying, Lord, I don't want to go through this. That, that's often my prayer. I don't want to get hurt, Lord. I mean, the scourging and the beating, it was brutal. To be nailed on a cross in the way that the Romans would do it, to be hung on there. I mean, there's an English word that is derived from being crucified. It's called excruciating. That word comes from the intensity of pain of what it meant to hang on a cross. So all that Jesus endured in his physical body, that, that in itself is horrible. But I would add to you, I would submit to you to add to this, it wasn't just that. That in his humanity, he also realized the emotional, and I also believe in the spiritual, struggle and torment. That he knew that the sins, your sins and mine, were going to be, if you will, heaped on him. And the judgment that we deserved, Jesus would take. compoundedly all of our sins, all of the judgment. And I don't fully understand it. And there are those who would say that in that moment where he cries out, my Father, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where judgment of the Father would be poured out upon the Son and those who believe that perhaps in that moment of time where the Father, if you will, would look away from the Son or be separated in that moment, how, how that could happen, I, that I don't know. But I understand a little bit of that kind of despair. I don't think we fully appreciate then all that Christ went through for us. And I understand a glimpse of it. And you think about your most closest earthly relationship, your, your family member, maybe a friend, you love them, you're close with them. And to be separated from them, that's painful. It's not, you know, it's not physically painful, right? It's a pain in your heart and your gut. It lumps up in our throat. We miss them. You know, PCS season is coming and it's bittersweet, there's a part of me that likes it because we get to meet new people, and there's a part of me that hates it because the people that we really like and we fall in love with, you guys move. And of course, I think we can relate, especially with COVID, right? There's, I've talked with some of you, prayed with some of you, you want to go back to the, you know, to the States or you have family members somewhere else, and, and we just, we can't. 
And it's hard. And it stinks. And the longing is that much more intense. Like we, we get a glimpse of that, what it means to be separated from a loved one. Some of you, you're coming in a season where you're going to launch your kid into kindergarten and it's going to be hard. And others of us, right, we're launching our kids to college and, and for, well, at least for my family, it's hard for Christy, but for me, I'm like, yay, go, be, you know. <laughs> it is a suffering of the heart and a deep sorrow and and Christ went through that, this, the, this prayer that he prayed, and it was tears and it's cries to God who's able, and yet we know even though he heard him, it didn't, he didn't answer him in the way that where Christ would say, hey, let's have plan B. There was no plan B, because Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus dies, and he gives your life for you. He gives his life for you and for me, and thus See, it qualifies him then, if you will, to have compassion. And we've already read that. He's our compassionate high priest because he experienced something that you and I will never, I think, suffered in a way that you and I will never suffer. And all that to say then, the greatest compassion that you and I will ever experience, that you could ever find, it's found in Christ. Because you... And I, as people, we're limited, just like Aaron was limited. Oh, he could understand. There was a little bit of understanding, but it was a limited understanding. He couldn't fully sympathize. He couldn't fully empathize. And so we see here that Christ in his flesh, compassionate. And though he was a son, verse 8, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Well, let me back up. This in verse 7 also reminds us that even as God would hear the Son, we can be assured that God hears our prayers. John tells us in 1 John 5.14 that this is the confidence you and I can have as we approach God in prayer, that he hears us. We can ask anything, but there's a qualifier if we ask according to his will. Jesus says in the Gospels, if you pray anything, here's the qualifier, in my name, I'll hear you, you'll have it. See, we make the mistake to think, oh, if I just say in the name of Jesus then, in the name of Jesus, I pray for a Lamborghini. In the name of Jesus, no, listen, Uh, there are those who I would say misunderstand that. It's not a, you know, the term like name it and claim it and blab it and grab it. Do we want to pray in faith? Yes. But to pray in the name of Christ means to pray in His nature. It means to pray in His character. It's not like a genie just, okay, I'm going to say this phrase, and because I say the phrase, that means then I can get what I want. You understand? But we can be absolutely assured that God hears our prayers, will answer our prayers. But understand, too, that He answers according to His will, not ours. And sometimes we may not like it. Sometimes it may be painful. Sometimes it may be difficult. But the promise of God to you and to me is it will be good and it will be for his glory. Although he's a son, and yet, this is an interesting phrase. Here's another bump we have to take slowly. Learned obedience by the things which he suffered. 
first of all, understand that sonship and suffering uh, go together. It was true of Christ, and guess what? It is true for you and for me. The Bible says not only has it been given the privilege for you and I to be called the sons and daughters of Christ, Philippians 1.29, but guess what? We've also been given the privilege to suffer for his namesake. And so it's a mistake to think that, oh, once I become a Christian, all my problems have gone away. That I'm going to not suffer anymore. I'm not going to hurt anymore. I'm not going to be disappointed anymore. No, it, it still happens. The difference is Christ will walk through you, support you, lead you, guide you. But none of us, in a sense, get out of, a get-out-of-trouble-free card. Arguably, it means we can expect suffering to happen. And so those two things go together. Though he's a son, yet he would suffer. But notice this phrase, and again, we have to pause just for a little bit. He learned obedience. What does it mean that he learned obedience? Once again, just like when we talk about the sonship of Christ, do not think that Christ wasn't the son and all of a sudden became the son. And do not think that Christ wasn't obedient and all of a sudden became obedient. Right? It is true for you and for me that we weren't once children, but now we are children. And it's also true that we were once not obedient. We were disobedient, but now we walk in obedience. But that is not true of Christ. And so we still have to figure out what does it mean that he says that he learned obedience. We learn obedience. We, we're disobedient and we learn obedience. We have to be taught that. I, I would submit to you that we don't really have to be taught disobedience. By default, it's our nature. If you don't believe me, go volunteer in the toddler class. They're cute. They're adorable. But guess what? They're disobedient. Never did I come home to find Christy saying, this is how you climb up the bookshelf, kids. This is how you hide cookies well. So what does it mean? Listen, Jesus did not learn how to obey. <laughs> he was always completely obedient to the Father. And so what does it mean that he learned? I want to submit to you what he experienced in his humanity. Right? In the days of his flesh, he learned, if you will, he experienced what his perfect obedience would mean for him in his humanity. That's something he never experienced before until he came as a man. And once again, it didn't make him, it revealed who he was already. It revealed a characteristic of who Christ was, his nature. He's always been obedient. The fact that he then goes to the cross and dies, then demonstrates his obedience, and he realized, or not realized, what's the word I want to say? Jesus comes to then experience what that meant for him as a man. Philippians 2 tells us that he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of man, 
he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We learn obedience often through difficult things. We get to learn to trust God more and give him our hurts and work through those things. In fact, we can even experience pain because of our obedience like Christ did. The strain of relationships. We want to follow the Lord. We want our marriage to honor God. We want our kids and our family. And and then even our kids experience mockery and ridicule, being teased. It's hard, but it's good for us. I'll just say it this way. Here's a point of an application that we... It's good for us to learn that we need to accept suffering that God brings into our life as a means to grow closer to the Lord. Christ didn't learn to be obedient. He's already obedient. But he experienced what his obedience would cost him. Verse 9, we read, Then having been perfected, here we go again. Here's another one, another speed bump. This one I want to you know, hit the accelerator. Oh, no, we got to slow down. What does it mean to be having been perfected? Once again, it falls in the same category. It doesn't mean that he wasn't perfect and all of a sudden now is perfect. Jesus has always been perfect. So what do we do with that phrase? Here's the best way I think I can explain it. The idea of having been perfected as we understand it means we were imperfect, we're not something, we go through a process and now we're something else. And so the process in itself then becomes the modifier or the changer. You know, again, we understand that in the natural. At one time in your life, you weren't a teacher, you weren't an airman, you weren't married. Uh, you didn't have a scuba license, you didn't have a driver's license, you weren't something. But then you went to boot camp, you went to driving school, you took the scuba class, right? You, you did something, you learned something. And then through that process, you now became something else. Now you're a pilot, now you can dive, now you can cut hair, now you can... Right? The process then perfected you. The process qualified you. That didn't happen with Jesus. That happens to us. Nothing was needed to perfect Jesus. There's no process that perfected him. The ordeal of coming as a man, as living and living perfectly and dying and resurrected, that process didn't make him perfect. In the same way, when he came, it didn't make him the son. It revealed him as the son. I would say in parallel, the process revealed his perfection. It proved his perfection. It demonstrated that he is perfectly fitted to be our high priest, our savior, the author and the finisher of our faith. Does that make sense? I hope it does. I have no other analogy. at least not for today. If you applied for one of those jobs, you're like, oh, I have a hula hoop. And you apply for the job, 
the application doesn't qualify you. You wouldn't say, oh, now you're qualified. No, you're already qualified. You have the prerequisites. Did I say it right that time? You have what you need. The application just proves it. See, Christ going through all that he went through didn't make him perfected. It just demonstrates, it proves that he's already perfect and he qualified, proves his qualification as our earthly high priest. Listen, I realize it's hard things. In fact, the next verse tells us it's hard things. Of whom we have much to say, but it's hard to explain. I say amen to verse 11. And there's going to be some more difficult things. In fact, we're going, to have a, we're going to have a little bit of a stinging rebuke because it goes on to tell the readers, but some of you become dull of hearing. Some of you, you should be tracking already, but uh, you're still drinking a milk bottle and you should having steak. We'll get there soon enough. Oh, there's the bell. Let me just end here. Jesus fulfills all the requirements. It would be a comfort to the Hebrew Christians. But not only does he fulfill it, he far exceeds it. See, he, is, he was more than what they needed for them. And guess what? He is more than what we need today. Jesus is more than enough for every need, for every hurt, for every frustration. Christ is more than enough for you. And because he is then our high priest, we don't have to go anywhere else. We don't have to find then the answers anywhere else. We don't have to find the wisdom, the, con the comfort, and the consolation. We can go to Christ. And Christ says, come to me. Because he is more than enough. He lives forevermore. He's always available. Amen? Father, thank you. Such a rich portion. I pray that, God, I pray my handling of it honored you, was edifying for our church today. Lord, I pray that it would just stir in us a hunger and a thirst to dig in deeper ourselves, to read 6 and 7, Genesis 14. Lord, that we'd understand what does it mean that you, you are our high priest as well the fullness of that statement. To lead and guide and comfort. To provide. Lord, I thank you for our church family. I thank you that you gave your life for all of us. Lord, I thank you that you live forevermore. That you are one of a kind. Unique. And Lord, you call us to yourself. May we not delay. May we come to you today and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.